Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast. Our mission of teaching people to love God by showing them how much He loves us starts right now. Tonight, as we study, we are going to look at something that the church and that God considers very sacred, something that Jesus instructed to do whenever we take part in it, to do in remembrance of him. Of course, we're talking about communion. It's the first Wednesday of June, and on the first Wednesday of every month, that's the time that we've set aside to honor and remember the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm not sure about you. You can raise your hand if this is you. But for me, doing something over and over that I've done before can at times begin to feel like a ritual or commonplace, and it can lose its meaning. So tonight, as I was thinking about communion, you know, we we consider it, it's a store-bought cracker, and it's a cup of juice, a tiny cup of grape juice. And if we forget to dwell on the depth of its meaning and the significance of why we take it, of why we partake in it, then it will become just another common religious ritual that will have no effect on us or our hearts. So my goal tonight through this teaching is threefold. Number one, to identify what communion means to us. Number two, why it is such a special observance for us to participate in, why it's so special. And number three, what should our response be? Let me give you those again. What does it mean to us? Why is it so special? And what should our response be? To me, reflecting back on what Pastor Ben taught us last week, if you were here, you'll remember we were in the book of Revelation If you weren't here, you can definitely catch it on the podcast. But thinking back, it's tragic when we see Jesus's edict or his, uh, basically where he's calling out the church of Ephesus. Remember what he said, what Jesus said in Revelation chapter two? He said, I have this against you. You've left your first love. And we spoke all about having that passion and desire for Jesus when we first get saved only to see time, familiarity, and comfort chip away at what once existed. And what was the remedy that Jesus gave to the church of Ephesus, to the Ephesians? Well, much like our passage tonight, he said a very important word in the Christian life, and that word is remember. And that's what Jesus instructed us to do when we consider communion. He says, do this in remembrance of me. So we have to ask, why is remembering so important? Well, the truth is, and any one of you can back me up on this, we're forgetful people. How many of you have ever lost your keys? How many of you have ever lost your glasses, walked around frustrated going, where are my glasses, only to find that they're on your head? How many of you have left things in the freezer, like car keys? I mean, we are forgetful people. And it seems like the older we get the worse our memory can get. My dad loved the joke. He loved to used to, or he loved to tell this joke where he would say, your memory is the third thing you lose as you get older. And he goes, I'm sorry, I can't tell you the first two. That was like one of his favorite jokes. So we can be forgetful. We are forgetful people. But while forgetfulness, yes, can be a result of old age, 
it can also be a result of neglect and comfort. I came across this during my time of studying for this message. It's a part of a proclamation declaring a national day of fasting given by President Lincoln in the year 1863. This is what he said. He said, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken, unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Can you imagine a president of the United States saying that now? I'm saying Abraham Lincoln could preach. Um, you know, and what a powerful exhortation from a former leader of our country. His statement basically telling us that in our comfort, we forget. And in that place of forgetfulness, we neglect. Can you imagine what Abraham Lincoln would say in this day and age? I can't. All I know is it would be U-G-L-Y, and it would not have an alibi. Okay, so with comfort, we realize that it's easy to forget. But on the other hand, isn't it so true that the things that we're passionate about and constantly revisiting or putting time into, we don't forget? I'll use my life as an example. Being somewhat geek chic, I like movie quotes and comic book movies, basically nerd culture. And if you hang out with me for any amount of time, that's going to be blatantly obvious as you spend time around me, the way I talk, my references, my illustrations, things like that. Now, don't get me wrong, that's not all my personality and life are about, but it's something that I've enjoyed, and in that enjoyment, I've been passionate about. Now, on the other hand, there are people that are passionate about so many different types of things. You think about the people that love to talk about sports. You know, we, I, I think for me, sometimes it blows my mind because you'll hear people talk about sports for hours. And out of nowhere, they'll recall the numbers of guys' jerseys, they'll recall stats, and they'll start pulling up games from years where I don't even remember something that happened in that year, but they'll remember specific games or specific sports plays in those games. And why is that? Because they're passionate about it. And so that's the question that we have to ask ourselves tonight. Am I passionate about God's Word? Am I passionate about the things of Jesus? Does the Bible excite me? Or in the familiarity and comfort of saying, hey, I know God and He knows me, all of a sudden we become forgetful. All of a sudden our love for God starts to wane and we start to forget. And so you might be looking at me and you're, you say, well, what does all this have to do with a cracker and some juice? Why are you asking this, all of this stuff? Well, I am bringing remembrance and forgetfulness up because the moment that we forget what taking communion means, we are just eating the bread and drinking the wine 
in sheer ritual and routine. It's pretty obvious that our enemy, the devil, loves a forgetful Christian. He loves the believer who is on autopilot. The, the guy or the gal that says, I take communion because that's just what we do. And then their dialogue goes on to say, I go to church on Sundays or Wednesdays because that's just what we do. I live in Texas and we go to church on those days. I serve in church because it's expected. And if we lose sight, church, of why we do what we do, and we just fall into the trap of religious ritual, then we are on the verge of autopilot. And what God is calling us to do is wake up and remember He's saying, why are you passionate about what you're passionate about? Why are you taking these elements? What does it mean? And so I pray that after this teaching, this cracker and this juice, or more aptly for Jesus' day, and this is what I'll refer to from now on, this bread and this wine, whenever we take it, whether it's tonight or the first Wednesday of the month or with family or whatever we're setting we're in, I pray that the wine and the bread will serve each one of us, this is going to sound crazy, as tiny little time machines. You heard me right. Tiny little time machines that act as memory triggers, pulling us first into the past, then jetting us into the future, and finally bringing us full circle back to resting in the present. All right, I looked at some of your eyes, and you're like, whoa, that got weird. So let me ask this. How are bread and wine tiny time machines that are going to serve as memory triggers? Well, we're going to find out. And stay with me. Don't, lose, don't let me lose you on this. Because when it's all said and done, it's, it's probably going to feel a little bit like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure when they had the time-traveling phone booth. And there goes my nerd culture references. But if you're taking note, I've titled this teaching, The Bread, the Wine, and Traveling Through Time. Let me say that again if you're writing it down the bread, the wine, and traveling through time. We're in Matthew 26. Let's quickly get some context and see what's happening here in this verse, in this chapter. Jesus and his disciples are now in the upper room. They've had three super fruitful years of ministry, and many hearts have been touched, people healed, and lives changed, as well as many religious leaders infuriated with rage and jealousy, enough to carry out their plan to kill Jesus. So there they are, and they are celebrating Jesus' last Passover on earth with his disciples. If you have been around modern art or ancient art or contemporary Italian art for any amount of time, you've probably seen the Leonardo da Vinci painting, not, the, not Leonardo the Ninja Turtle, but Leonardo da Vinci, and it's called The Last Supper, where you have all the disciples sitting and Jesus in the middle. And so that's what this is. This is his last meal. And it's during this meal that Jesus institutes the act, the ceremony, the custom of communion. So I want to give a side note real quick. Sometimes communion is referred to as a very churchy word, the Eucharist. And that sounds like a big word, but all it does is it comes from the Greek word, which is eucharisteo, which means give thanks or Thanksgiving. It's mentioned 41 times in the New Testament. And what the Eucharist is like is basically um, praying before we eat. 
Uh, it's the same word when it says Jesus was about to, to hand out the loaves and the fishes to the 5,000 and then the 4,000. It said that he gave thanks before he passed it out. And so that's what Eucharist means. It means give thanks. And then even the word communion comes from the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship. And because that's what we have with God through the taking of communion. We become part of the body and we're cleansed by the blood. Okay, that's enough context. Now to our text, Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26, it reads, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Verse 27, Then he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Verse 29, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Those are our four verses we're looking at tonight. So you say, okay, Pastor Josh, I'm tracking with you in the scripture. And, and maybe if you're one of those sensory learners, you're kind of closing your eye and you're trying to put yourself there in the upper room and, and see this whole scene playing out, catch the, the sights, the smells, the overall ambience, ambience, sorry. And uh, you're saying, but hold on, can I make an observation? Pastor Josh, I don't see time travel in this passage at all. That sounds a little loony. Well, I encourage you, please stay with me because this is the crux of this teaching and my challenge to you every time you take communion from this night on. We'll start back in verse 26, just like Jesus did. It says, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. As we come to the communion table, the table of fellowship with God, I pray, and my challenge for myself and for you, every time that we pick up the bread, that it time travels us back first to Genesis chapter 3. So we all get in our Bill and Ted's excellent phone booth, and we all go back, and the next thing you know, we land in the most beautiful place this earth has ever seen. And as we come out of the phone booth, the first thing that we see is Eve. She's, she's stark naked, and that's okay, because that was what God created, and that's how it was supposed to be, naked and unashamed. And right there, she's standing there, and next to her as a snake. And what we see is Eve, through the, de the deception of Satan, he's saying, hey, why can't you eat that tree? And she's like, uh, God said we shouldn't touch it. And Satan says, no, God just knows that if you eat it, you'll be just like him, which was a half-truth. And so the next thing that we see as we're watching this time travel unfold, we see Eve Deceit, being deceived into eating this fruit. The next thing we see is Adam come up, and Eve is going, hey, I just ate this fruit. And he goes, huh, let me try it. And Adam, instead of being deceived, he sins willfully. He willfully takes it and eats it. And at that moment, through time travel, we see that their sin resulted in fracturing God's perfect creation and sin entered the world and entered the bloodline of every person born from Adam and Eve all the way through history until you get 
to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, fully God, fully man, embarked on the greatest rescue mission this world has and ever will see. And so we get back in our time machine and we allow the bread to time travel us back to that night in Jerusalem. And we're going to go a little bit after the upper room because where we'll end up is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we don't want to miss this because the bread represents the body of Jesus. And we want to remember what happened to his body. Jesus from the upper room, his disciples and he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where he told them to watch and pray. And you remember they started to crash out. But it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus prayed three times, Father, if this is possible, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but but yours be done. Three times Jesus prayed that. He came back in agony. And and scholars refer to this time in the Garden of, of Gethsemane as the crucifixion before the crucifixion because Jesus was under such a heavy amount of stress and anxiety that Luke's gospel, Dr. Luke, tells us that he began to sweat great drops of blood. It's a medical condition called hematidrosis, uh, and it's caused by severe mental anxiety. Here is our Savior, Jesus, on this rescue mission to deliver us from sin, and he's faced with drinking this cup. The cup refers to a cup that would be filled with every sin, every evil, all the wickedness in this world, any sin that would ever be committed. Here he is, our sinless, spotless lamb, about to pay for every lie, every murder, every theft, every impure thought ever committed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Church, I have to tell you something. Don't let anyone ever tell you that there's another way to heaven other than Jesus. What did Jesus tell us through our John study? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to the Father except through me. Don't you think, as Jesus was under such severe mental pain and distress, that he was sweating great drops of blood, that as he went to pray to God the Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass before me. Do you think it'd be weird that like on the third time, God's like, oh yeah, I just remembered. All people have to do is be good. Their good just has to outweigh their bad. That's all they have to do. Or all they have to do is just put their faith in one world religion. You know, it doesn't matter which one, whatever it is, it's all going to work out. Wouldn't that be ridiculous? Wouldn't that be so mean of God if that was the case? But that's what the world wants you to believe. That's that poisonous doctrine. You know, my, my wife and I sat down, and it was based on the recommendation I'd seen online about this good show that was on Netflix, and you have to be careful of what you get recommended to you, because we sat down either this week or last week, and I said, do you want to check it out? And she goes, yeah, and it has an actress in it and an actor in it that we've liked, and so we thought, hey, this might be a fun show to watch. So we turned it on, and, and I'll tell you, it's called The Good Place. And right into it, you could tell 
It was weird because from the moment it starts, it has this girl who's died. And she hasn't gone to heaven or hell because that's not what they refer to them as, but she's gone to what they call the good place. And so she sits down with one of the guys that's basically an administrator there, and she starts to ask him, well, who had it right? And he goes, well, you know, when it comes to the afterlife, the Christians had it about 5% right, the Muslims, the Buddhists. And he starts saying all these terrible things. And I mean, we're both sitting there cringing. And um, he goes, wait, you're going to miss the presentation. And the next thing you know, they take him out. And there's all these people that have gone and passed on. And he's like, welcome. I want you to know that you're here and you're one in a million. You're here because from the moment that you're born, your good has outweighed your bad. Every deed that you've ever done in your life, we've been examining. And it starts giving this graph of saying, oh, you helped a, a woman across the street, and so you have good points. And it's like, oh, you, you littered trash on the ground, and so that's bad points. And he goes, so you all are here because your good outweighed your bad. I mean, I almost, I was like, I'm going to rip this TV off the wall and, and smash it. That, that sickened me. Because that's what our kids are growing up with. This show is in its third season coming out on NBC. I don't care what night it's on. Please don't watch it. I felt like a promo for a second there. This is the danger of what our kids are going through. This poisonous doctrine. They're not learning right from wrong. And people are teaching them terrible things where... If we don't course correct and we're not the light and we're not shining the light and telling people who Jesus is, then they go to hell thinking that it's a party. And they live their life thinking that if their good outweighs their bad, then they've earned their salvation. But Jesus' way is so much better. It's so much better. So Jesus' suffering didn't end in the garden. In fact, it was just beginning. He was arrested and put through illegal trials in the, in the early hours of the morning, like 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, all the way until daybreak. And he was unlawfully beaten all along that way. They beat him, they spat in his face, and they mocked him. At daybreak on Good Friday, after six trials, he ended up at the judgment seat of Pontius Pilate, who multiple times said the words that I find no fault in this man. If you know Jewish law, he said that one time, Jesus says, take off these handcuffs, I'm out. He was free. And he said it multiple times and they never freed Jesus. And we know why, because he was our sacrificial lamb. But he should have legally been free. But the crowd was not satisfied. And Pilate, trying to avoid further conflict with the Jewish leaders, thought that maybe they would accept a pound of flesh in order Jesus to be scourged. And so Jesus was taken, and he was stripped naked, and he was shackled by his wrist to a low column so that he would be in a bent-over position, and he was flogged with a flagrum, or we also know it as a cat of nine tails. It was a whip with multiple straps that would have either pieces of metal or bone. And, and the way that, the, that one uh, doctor described it online is he said, one or more soldiers would be assigned to deliver the blows from the flag flagrum. 
standing beside the victim, he would strike in an arc-like fashion across the exposed back. The weight of the metal or bone objects at the ends of the leather thongs would carry him to the front of the body as well as to the back, the arms, the shoulders, the waist, and the legs down to and including the calves. The bits of metal would dig deep into the flesh, ripping small blood vessels, nerves, muscle, and skin. The soldier would change position periodically and deliver blows from the opposite side. The injuries Jesus might have sustained would be extensive. A lot of prisoners who received scourging had fractured ribs, exposed organs, collapsed lungs. Those injuries were all commonly disdained, sustained during this torture. But it didn't stop there. They ripped his beard out so that his face was so swollen that it was unrecognizable, and they shoved a crown of thorns onto his head. Pilate, he reintroduced Jesus to this bloodthirsty crowd, hoping that the sight of this mingled man would invoke mercy. Instead, they chanted, crucify him, and Pilate conceded. From Jerusalem to Golgotha, Jesus carried his cross, and at 9 a.m. on the place that we call Calvary, spikes were driven into his hands and feet, and Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified. On that cross, and mind you, not a beautiful piece of art that we would have on our walls. I, I, I brought this from home to show an example. I mean, how many of us have a cross on our wall? It's not this. No, Jesus' cross was cruel and jagged. It probably had splinters. It was most likely used. And being pre-used, it was covered in other people's blood and terrible body fluids. It was on this cross that Jesus hung from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. before he died of virtually a broken heart. And you say, Josh, that was a really down and long and graphic description. And I say it was. But the, th the sad thing is, is I barely scratched the surface of the reality that Jesus faced during that time. And from this pulpit, we could literally spend weeks talking about the atrocities carried out our Savior. This description, the suffering Jesus endured, is his body, which 1 Corinthians 11 says is broken for us. And so as we take the bread, we are welcomed into the body of Christ, and we remember the suffering that he endured on our behalf. Pastor Ben brought it up just a couple weeks ago, and it was a really strong illustration where he said, hey, back in Isaiah 53, when it talks about the suffering servant, he says he was bruised for our transgressions. And he goes on to say it was for our iniquity that he suffered. And so for me, I never want to look at the bread the same way, and I never want us to look at the bread the same way. I never want to forget or neglect the realization of the debt that Jesus paid on our behalf, the suffering that he endured for my sin. One pastor put it this way, God treated Jesus like we deserve to be treated so that he could treat us like Jesus deserved to be treated. He took our place. For our sin, we deserved 
so much more. And yet, as our lamb, he took our place. He became sin so that in him we could become righteousness. And that's what the bread represents. Moving on, let's talk about the wine. Verse 27 says, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So now we come to the table and we receive the wine, which Jesus tells us is representative of the blood of the new covenant, of his blood of the new covenant. And so we want to get and we want to pile back into the time machine. And through the blood, we want to travel to Mount Sinai. And as the doors open, we see cloud, uh, we see a cloud and we see smoke and we see fire burning on the mountain because that's where Moses was receiving the law. That's where God was setting up the old covenant and he gave Israel the Ten Commandments. And through that, he established the Day of Atonement where once a year, only once a year, the high priest had to go before the Lord in, in the Holy of Holies to atone for the people's sins. And it had to happen over and over. If you remember the Old Testament, there's so many sacrifices for sin that had to take place. And so we stopped at Mount Sinai. We get back in the time machine, and we go even earlier where we show up in Egypt. We find that the children of Israel are slaves in Egypt, and all of a sudden you hear Moses saying, let my people go. And so as we get there, we find that nine plagues have already been unleashed on the Egyptians with the worst one yet to come because God through Moses told Pharaoh that he is going to kill all the firstborn children, animals, anything in the land. And the only safeguard against it was to have your doorpost and the top crossbar of your house covered with the blood of a spotless lamb so that the angel of death would pass over your household because you were covered by the blood. Right there in the Old Testament, God was showing the children of Israel the New Testament picture through the Old Testament principle. He was showing, hey, this is what's to come. You need to be covered by the blood. And so we get back into our time machine, and on our way back into Jesus' time, we stop briefly in, the, in the, the prophet Jeremiah's day to hear God speaking through him. In chapter, 21, chapter 31, it says in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make, the new covenant with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. And here's where it gets so cool. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. God, even in Jeremiah's day, was saying, 
I'm bringing about a new covenant. And so we come back in our time machine to Calvary where Jesus was sacrificed, where our Savior didn't come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it, that there on the rugged cross, that instrument of death, the most precious substance in the world, Jesus' blood was poured out for you and me. Christ as the ultimate spotless lamb. Once and for all, our debt was paid. And when we place our faith in him, we are covered in the blood. And when God looks at us, catch this, he doesn't see our faults or our sins. You know what he sees? He sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's what the wine represents. The blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. That's what the word remission means. Isn't that so awesome? That ties to me right into John 3.16. For God so loved the whole world. When we think about Jesus saying, which is shed for many, we have to remember that there are people out there that haven't received this forgiveness yet. And yet God wants to use us as instruments of his message to go out and tell them about it. And that's what I love about our church is that we are an evangelistic church. But we also have to have this message written on our hearts so that it doesn't only just go out from the pulpit, but it goes out from our lives. That it is written on the tablet of our hearts. And when we're in our workplaces and when we're in our schools and when we're in United, that people can see Jesus, not because of a Pharisee, um, I'm not going to touch wine or whatever it might be, but they can see that we have the joy of the Lord in our hearts. And even when the world tries to rock us and even when things happen, we're still holding strong to God because we're covered by the blood. And that means so much more for us than just what's in this temporary world. Because I sound like a used car salesman, but wait, there's more. Because now, not only have we traveled back to the cross, and not only have we traveled to Egypt to look at the old covenant to see that Jesus instituted grace in the new covenant, now we look at verse 29. It says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day, until that day when I come, or when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let me read that one more time because I messed it up. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The last form of time travel that we're going to take is not to the past, but this time it's to the future. Because finally, what we do is we let the cup take us into what is coming soon and very soon, the time when Jesus will come for his people. Pastor Dion taught about it on Sunday and encouraged that we all encouraged us that we all need to prepare, be prepared for the event, the event that we all long for, the rapture of the church. The book of Revelation chapter 19 verse 9 says that the church will, during the seven years of the tribulation here on earth, be partaking of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's so cool because if you know um, Jewish wedding cultures, there's huge implications here, and we, we don't really have time to go into that. But 
Never, and I'm, I'm going to get passionate about this, never let anyone tell you that there won't be food in heaven. <laughs> because, you know, Pastor Dion was talking about it on Sunday. He's like, we're not going to have to eat. You know, we're not going to need sleep. And I'm like, you... because while we may not need to eat to stay healthy or fed or nourished, rest assured, food is all about fellowship. And if you were to do a study about Jesus eating and meeting with people and, and fellowshipping with them over food, I mean, it would be huge, so I I digress, but just don't let people tell you there's not going to be food in heaven, because even the last chapter of Revelation says about the fruit on the side of the river that comes out of the throne. Okay, all right, so that's what the bread and the wine represent, because the wine has future implications of the hope of heaven, the promise of eternity spent with Jesus. And I appreciate that our pastor who has studied Jewish culture talks about how um, when, when Jews would celebrate the Seder, at last they would take the wine and they would hold it up and they would say, next year in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was the penultimate place for them to celebrate their Seder because that was like Disneyland to them. That was their, that was their, their greatest place. That was the place they wanted to be. But as Christians, what we're able to do, knowing the future implications of what the wine means for us, we're able to hold it up and we're able to say, Jesus, with you, next time in heaven. Because it's coming. It's coming for us. We don't know if, if you know, Jesus is going to come in the next five seconds or in the next 500 years. But everything in this world says he's coming soon. All the prophetical implications that need to happen have. And... God has told us that there's going to be a point where he's not going to allow us to get more wicked than Sodom and Gomorrah. And unfortunately, every day you pull up the news headlines and it's just so tragic. So much bad news out there. And, and the beauty of it is that Pastor Dion shared is don't think that his, his delay is a, is a curse, but in, instead consider God's delay a blessing because what it's allowing is more people to get saved, more people to be added to the fold. And that's what we see is that our God is gracious. And our God is long-suffering. But there's going to be a time where he says that's enough, and he's going to close the door of the ark. And whether we experience that trumpet and that one one-hundredth of a second where all of a sudden we're just like, bam, and we're gone, or whether we experience our own personal rapture, by breathing out our last breath and not having any come back in. It's coming soon and very soon. And this is the hope that we have in the blood of the new covenant, in this wine, that next time with Jesus in heaven. So that's what the bread and the wine represent. I'm going to close with this. One pastor said in taking communion, he described it like this. He said that we are tasting forgiveness. I, I was floored. I'm like, I can't teach after that. I mean, gosh, that's such a beautiful description. Because here we have the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of our Savior covering us, representing the sacrifice for sin that we deserved and representing the grace that God has bestowed, us on, bestowed upon us that we didn't deserve. Mercy in the body not getting what we deserved, and grace in the blood, getting all of everything that we never deserved. 
may we never forget. As we approach communion, may we pick it up and say, God, this is mercy. This is your mercy. This is your sacrifice. Let it time travel you back to those instances. Don't don't neglect Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Don't make the cross beautiful. Make it ugly. Because that's what he endured. And so we pick up the bread and we say, this is mercy. And then we pick up the cup and we say, this is grace. And this is the hope of heaven. So church, tonight as we come to the table, what should be our response as we take communion? Well, the first one is worship. The first response we should always have is worship. I said it before, you know, Satan loves a Christian that's on autopilot. And I'll tell you that there's nothing more that breaks, I know, Pastor Ben's heart in my heart, but to see people that come up, drink it, eat it, and just bounce. Because really, what the heart of it is, is as we have this mercy and this grace in our hands, that it would melt our hearts of stone and we would just pour out our hearts saying, thank you, God. Because that should be our response. To say thank you to God that because of his body, we are freely welcomed into him. Knowing what Jesus went through as a payment for our sins. And if that doesn't well up worship in us, then we need to do emergency heart check. So it should result in worship. Number two that I see is it should result in surrender. It should result in surrender, realizing that Jesus paid it all, and there's nothing that I can do to earn God's salvation. There's nothing that I can do except further surrender my life into him, further walk in the Spirit. Because through faith, we talked about this over and over, we have the fruit of righteousness, and as we walk with him, and as we mature in him, great things start to happen, and that brings about the fruit of righteousness. And so we worship, and then we surrender. And number three, we hope. We remember the hope of what's to come. We have the hope of heaven, and then we have the hope of sharing this glorious, wonderful, beautiful salvation with others. The hope of knowing that God has a plan for you and that you're part of it. That's the beauty of it. We taste forgiveness. So church, in a minute, I'm going to pray, and we're going to play some worship music. And I encourage you that as you come for the cracker and the juice or the bread and the wine, let them take you to the places we spoke of tonight and let the result be worship. And I want to say this because this is what Paul warns us in the book of 1 Corinthians, he says, let no one take this in an unworthy matter because I want to say this, if you're here tonight and you have never received the forgiveness that Jesus offers, if you've never accepted him into your heart, the debt that he paid on our behalf, then tonight's the night. Jesus first offered the bread so that we could partake of his body. He says, come as you are. I accept you as you are. You don't have to do anything to clean yourself up. He says, just take. And that's the neat thing is he says, take of it. He doesn't say, I'm going to force this in your mouth. He says, it's your choice. He says, take of the bread. 
And he says, come as you are. And then after that, he says, drink the wine. Because he says, once you're in my body, I do the cleansing. I clean you up with my blood. And so if that's you tonight, and you've never received Jesus into your heart, then, then you want to take communion as a brand new believer in God. And we want to give you that opportunity because God is calling you to the table of forgiveness and salvation. Will you pray with me? Oh God, as I look at our lives, there's nothing that we want to do for you using a religious routine. May everything we do be something that we know why we're doing it and the heart behind it. And may the response to communion always be worship, always be surrender, and always be hope. May we come to the bread realizing that it's mercy and come to the wine realizing that it's grace. I thank you for everyone here tonight. And I pray over their lives, I pray that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. And God, if there's anyone in this room that hasn't received your salvation, I just want to take a moment. And if, if that's you, if I was talking to you tonight and you've never received Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior, I want to pray with you to receive him. And so if you've never done that, I, just, I, I ask you to do something really brave. I ask you to raise your hand right now. If that's something that you've never done and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's calling out to you and he wants to give you that opportunity. If you've never done that before, raise your hand. Amen. God, we thank you. We don't come unworthily, unworthily to the table. We're never worthy, but it's because of who you are and what you've done through us and in us that we're worthy. And so we come tonight with the heart and an attitude of worship. And we come to the table. God, where we find mercy and grace. We love you, Lord, and we worship you. Hey, this is Pastor Josh. I hope this message has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. If it has, we would love to hear your story of how it has impacted you, or especially if you responded to the invitation to receive Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. To get in touch or to receive more information, please contact us by phone at 806-799-2227 or send an email to calvarylubbock at hotmail.com. Again, that phone number is 806-799-2227. Also, if you want to partner with us financially to take the gospel to West Texas and the world, please click on the Donate button on calvarychapellubbock.org. Thanks for listening to the podcast. May God richly bless you.